We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain, living in Canada, and who's worked in the U.S. And since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is a question. Ontario's developmentally challenged go to court. Who's challenged now? Here's the background. How well people with various mental health and other conditions were cared for in an Ontario government facility is up for examination in a pending class action lawsuit. The lawsuit goes to trial in Ontario in September 2013. It concerns the operation of the Huronia Regional Centre closed in 2009. Since 1876, this had provided a residential program for mentally challenged and disabled persons. The persons represented in the lawsuit lived at the centre between 1945 and 2009, as well as certain of their family members. In the lawsuit, it's alleged that the province's failure to care for these persons resulted in loss or injury, including psychological trauma, pain and suffering, loss of enjoyment of life, and exacerbation of existing mental disabilities. Now, concerns about developmental disabilities and the disabled exist in the U.S. too. On November 5th, 2011, the New York Times carried a story about care of the developmentally challenged. It was headlined, In-State Care, 1,200 Deaths and Few Answers. Now, to discuss the Ontario class action suit, our guests are Jody Brown and Bruce Ritchie. Now, Jody is an associate with the law firm Kosky Minsky LLP in Toronto, Ontario. He received his Bachelor of Laws degree from Dalhousie University in 2009. He works primarily in the areas of class actions and commercial litigation. In his class actions practice, he's focused on large-scale institutional abuse cases. Bruce Ritchie, our other guest, is moderator and CEO of FAS-Link Fetal Alcohol Disorder Society. This society serves more than 400,000 people annually. Bruce received Toronto St. Michael's Hospital's Award for pioneer work in the area of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, among various outstanding awards. And he's a single father of a son 
who was diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as an infant. So welcome to the show, Jody and Bruce. Thank you for having us. Now, Jody, you first, please. Please, could you explain to us what a class action suit is intended to achieve and say what the court will be asked to decide in the Huronia case, that the Huronia class action? Please. Well, a class action in its simplest terms is uh, one lawsuit that's meant to resolve the claims of hundreds or thousands of people. Uh, it's essentially a way to create access to justice, but also uh, to create efficiencies within the judicial system. Um, and the key ingredient for a class action is that it's meant to resolve lots of claims that have a similar element. Um, so in this case, the similar element and what the court's going to be asked to resolve is whether all the residents who lived at the Heronia Regional Center between 1945 and 2009, whether the government breached either a fiduciary duty owed to those residents or were some, was somehow negligent in the care and supervision and causing them harm. Um, so essentially it's a, a way that all these residents, the thousands of them who normally couldn't access the justice system, usually because they would have uh, too small amounts of money to pay a lawyer, or it's a sort of a case of, uh, um, you know, taking on one little resident versus big government is difficult. But when we all get together, it's a, a very efficient way, creates access to justice and is, uh, creates strength. And so the court's just going to be asked to decide that for all of these people, you know, did the government breach some duty owed to them? Right. Now, Bruce, question for you is, as we mentioned, your son has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. What is this condition? And is it one that's likely to have affected persons in institutions like Huronia? Well, a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is caused when a pregnant woman uh, drinks uh, alcohol during the course of the pregnancy. Uh, it has um, the potential for producing more than 60 different major medical conditions. It's the leading cause of mental retardation in North America. Uh, it's responsible for uh, an enormous number of uh, disabilities like uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorders and uh, right through to schizophrenia, autism, Asperger's, uh, just a huge menu of uh, medical conditions that are caused when a woman drinks uh, during pregnancy. Right. What about um, this, this question, though, that um, is it likely that FASD would have been a condition that affected people who were in institutions like Huronia? Uh, my bet would be that it would have been uh, one of the things or the thing that was the primary reason for the majority of patients who being in Huronia. Right. Now, Jody, over to you. What, what are the allegations in the suit? And in particular, what mental disabilities do they relate to? The key allegations mainly relates to that the Crown failed to properly supervise and run these facilities. Um, resulting in residents suffering abuse, um, but also residents being subjected to low standards of care, both in terms of uh, staff care, but also simply in terms of the physical layer of the facility. And in terms of what mental disabilities they might relate to, um, like uh, Bruce had mentioned, it, there's kind of a whole menu that uh, has likely come up. Um, the Crown like to use uh, kind of a broad umbrella just saying, you know, there's mental retardation. That's a label they were using. But 
likely there were all sorts of things there, and I've seen them as people who actually, you know, had schizophrenia, um, autism, um, and otherwise could simply be called uh, developmentally delayed. Just to follow up to that, this developmentally delayed terminology seems in some ways to cover up the point that, let's be straight, these, some of these people anyway had what the rest of us might call mental illnesses. Jody, is that a fair comment on my part? Um, I'd say sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's, it also depends on the time period when we were looking at the institution. Um, early on in the institution, because it was open in 1876, it was originally called the, the Asylum for Idiots. And so at that time, probably the vast majority of people did actually have what now we would recognize as mental illnesses. Um, but as the population kind of got more uh, refined in the government's eyes, at least, in terms of that we began to open more... Uh, or medicine began to maybe more differentiate between developmental delays and mental illnesses. Um, Heronia began to focus more on what you would call developmental delays. But um, I don't have a whole uh, categorization of everyone who is there with what kinds of mental illness, but I think it would be fair to say that there definitely were, would be some people lumped in there that have mental illness. Right. Bruce, going back to your work with FAS Link and uh, the, the society, Please say more about the mental health conditions that you think correspond to the mental disabilities that Jody was talking about and also over this time period that he was talking about. In other words, what do you think about this question of uh, mental illness, mental disability, and the makeup of a population such as your Ontario's? Uh, well, they can be uh, <laughs> multiple co-occurring conditions in the same patients. Uh, you can have mental retardation and mental illness in the same patient uh, in quite a, quite a variety of conditions. Uh, there's almost no part of the human body that isn't attacked by alcohol uh, in utero during pregnancy, so it depends on what mom was drinking, when during the course of the pregnancy, what was developing, and how much she was drinking. Uh, but in terms of uh, you know issues such as developmental delays, one of the things we have found uh, is that sometimes the developmental delays with fetal alcohol disorders are because the child has terrible short-term memory. And if you can find some way of triggering uh, that short-term memory, and sometimes that's done with medication, then the developmental delay can be uh, recovered from. But if they don't do that, if they don't do the appropriate care and the appropriate diagnosis at the front end, the prognosis is terrible. Um, I was fortunate with my son that uh, he had just about everything on the menu for fetal alcohol syndrome. And, but we had a, an early diagnosis and intensive intervention. And as a result, uh, he graduated from high school as an Ontario scholar. And he's currently in college. So, you know, if, if, the, <laughs> if the appropriate interventions were done in the first place, a lot of the patients at Huronia would have probably had a far better outcome. Jody, a quick one, because we've got the break looming up. Um, when you talk about the time, when would you say, from what you've read and studied and heard, that 
people should have been aware of the kind of things that um, Bruce has just been talking about. That is to say, with proper care, people with conditions like FASD could do a lot better than if they didn't receive that care. What do you think, Jody? Um, well, I think definitely in the United States, at least, and this translates into Canada probably about 10 years later, is in the 1950s in the U.S., there really began to be a lot of studies published saying that these big, giant institutions are a problem because you're just grabbing all sorts of people, tossing them in, and not providing proper individualized uh, care. So it's in the 1950s. Right. So what we're looking at, then, is a question and. This isn't a question that we're going to address in this segment, but the question of, okay, when should we have known in Canada, given that more than half a century ago that you've just been talking about? Mm-hmm. Now, well, if, if I can toss something in there. Very quickly, already, 10 seconds. Uh, okay, uh, Judges 13 of the, the Bible uh, refers to do not uh, drink wine or other strong drink during the pregnancy for Samson's mother. So we've known for over 3,000 years that it's a problem. Okay. Good point. Now, we're going to go off into the break now because this is the time when we have to take a short break to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guests are Jody Brown and Bruce Ritchie. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We're coming back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you feel as if your life is just filled with random awkward moments? Believe me, you're not alone. Tune in every Friday for TAG, the Awkward Girl Guide, with your host, Ashley Iola. Ashley has learned to own her awkward, and she guides you how to do the same. It's awkward, but it can be a lot of fun, too. We'll talk about relationships, sports, food, health, family life, and social life. Each show hopes to make you a bit more in control of your awkward. Tune in to TAG, the Awkward Girl Guide, Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email 
to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jody Brown and Bruce Ritchie. Our topic is Ontario's developmentally challenged go to court. Who's challenged now? Let's talk now about responsibilities, attitudes, and standards of care. Jody, the first question is for you, and it's this. The suit names the province of Ontario, but that's a geographic area. Who do you actually see as the people who are delivering the care that's in question, and whom do you see as the people who were responsible for deciding what care was delivered? Jody, please. So the people who are delivering the care, I think it's unquestionably the frontline service providers in the institution, um, which consisted of orderlies, uh, doctors, um, various medical professionals such as psychiatrists, um, and we're not naming them in the lawsuit and we're not going after them. Uh, we're focusing on, I guess, what you kind of almost call the 10,000-foot the level. Uh, we're looking at the broad policy of building these institutions, filling them with people, um, and then also keeping them open. And so the people who are responsible for that is really uh, the cabinet, so the highest levels of government in uh, Ontario. And that's actually one of the defenses that the Crown has leveled in their statement of defense is that, you know, all the decisions remain at the highest level. So all the decisions from that, uh, you know, we're going to use restraints on these kinds of people, we're going to use these kinds of punishments, and uh, we're going to limit their mobility in this way. They're saying that was done at uh, the highest level. So um, that's, who respon- that's who's responsible, and uh, that's who we're going after. Do you have any, Jody, this is just a sort of quick extra on that one. Yes. Do you have any sense of whether the, the ministers in the government were actually approached on the issue, the, these broad general issues of, uh, you know, people being, in, how can I put it, locked away, yes. yeah. this kind of thing. Were they actually able to discuss that? Uh, undoubtedly. Um, there were some reports in the early 70s in Canada commissioned by the government uh, detailing that uh, these institutions actually, the, the conclusion of the reports was that they needed to be closed down, mainly because the, the model of care was shifting away from the large institutional base to something that's more community-oriented. So uh, I think they're de- we're definitely aware. Right. Good. Let's go to Bruce now. Um, again, drawing on your experience with FAS Link, um, what mental illnesses do terms like developmentally challenged, developmentally disabled, developmentally handicapped, and mentally disabled actually refer to? Well, they'll, they'll range from um, issues uh, such as speech and language delays. Uh, it could be mental retardation. It could be the inability to uh, have any short-term memory. Because if you haven't got short-term memory, you can't uh, progress in your learning. So delays happen fairly quickly. But uh, as I mentioned a little earlier, there's uh, you know just an absolutely huge menu from ADHD, uh, oppositional defiant disorders. Um, just a, a ton of things that the medical profession uh, has tried to label uh, without, in many cases, actually realizing where the, um, the originating issue is. And I suspect a lot of the time these institutions were one just great big laboratory in which people were just trying to uh, find out how to deal with the issue as opposed to actually <laughs> providing the care that is needed. 
uh, when it comes to the politicians at the highest level, uh, I doubt if very many of them actually had any medical training. And so what you would have is a bunch of non-medically trained people trying to make medical decisions for thousands of patients and then not being prepared to fund it because these, these folks don't vote. Right. Jody, um, you've, you've mentioned what the government lawyers are saying by way of uh, defense or whatever the appropriate legal term is. Yep. Um, right. What I, I read is that the government lawyers have been saying that Institutions like the Huronia Center were managed in accordance with the standard of care of the time. What does this mean, uh, or what do they mean by it, and who was actually responsible for setting the standard? Now, I think you probably already answered that question by saying the government, but let's, I want really you to drill down to this idea of standard, care, standard of care, please. Okay, well, the, that one thing you quoted that... Uh that the, one of their defenses is that it was managed in accordance with the standard of care. That's sort of almost a, a boilerplate legal term that's inserted into pretty much any negligence action um, because ultimately who sets the standard of care in a lawsuit is actually the, the court will set it to decide whether there's been a breach. Um, but what the court does is it looks to experts and also um, what was going on at the time generally. Um, you know, to, to use a simple example, if you're driving uh, 160 kilometers an hour on a highway and everyone else is driving 100 kilometers an hour, uh, you're probably driving in a negligent fashion uh, because it's not the, the standard. Everyone else is going slower. Um, so in terms of setting these standards for the institutions, what we look to is um, what was going on in Canada and also what was going on in the U.S. And interestingly enough, the Canada actually had adopted um, the American Association for Mental Retardation Standards in relation to staffing levels, um, restraint policies, medication policies. Um, and so we look to organizations like that, particularly non-governmental organizations of doctors or professionals, saying, you know, what's, uh, what's the appropriate standard of how to treat these kind of people? Um, and so luckily in the, not luckily, but in the uh, 50s, these organizations were coming out and saying, you know, the standard of care now is no longer to put people into these big institutions. Right. right. Now, Bruce, it's the, basically the same question, but what's generally known about the standard of care for mental illnesses in institutions like Huronia up to 2009? In other words, from the kind of research you do, what do you find out about this? Often the standard of care is an expression that's used as a cop-out to keep from staying, staying up with the leading edge of uh, research. You know, we, we see new things happening. We have uh, new papers uh, being published on a regular basis, but it may take five or ten years for the profession to actually pay attention to it and do something with that. Um, standard of care, I find, is a very scary term. It's, a, it's used too often to justify not doing anything uh, or not making the changes at the rate they should be. Uh, so that, that has been a concern that we've had to deal with for a very, very long time. Jody, you said that standard of care tended to be a bit of, forgive me, lawyer's boilerplate in these sorts of things. But I'd like you to drill down somewhat into the point that Bruce has said, that in effect, 
it may not mean as much as we hope it means. And I, I just want to pick up one example. Um, I'm going to take it from you, Jedi. On the one hand, standard of care may mean, well, what everybody does, that is a sort of consensus thing. Or it may mean what the expert, experts think we should be doing, which may not be what we're actually doing. Or it may be something else. So please, could you just... Um, uh, kind of clarify this standards of care thing so that we're all clear what it means, not only for the lawsuit, but also for the future of the way in which we look after mental illness. Um, I'd say it, it would have to be almost a hybrid of both. Um, the courts are definitely going to look at what other people are doing because um, it almost goes on this sense that, uh, you know, if everyone else is kind of doing it, you can't punish one person who's maybe in who's also doing what everyone else is doing. Um, but then the other thing is you can't just excuse, uh, or put it another way, uh, bad behavior is bad behavior, regardless if lots of people are doing it. Uh, so there is a necessity to look toward the, the future and uh, changing trends. Um, and so it's, it can be hard to define what a standard of care is, um, and that's often why I think these lawsuits tend to drag out sometimes, or lawsuits often settle, is because people are uncertain as to um, how you can necessarily define the standard of care. Uh, but I would definitely agree with Bruce's comment that it's the unfortunate thing about the standard of care sometimes is that it's often sometimes a cop-out for what is essentially the, the status quo, um, or that uh, people aren't just adapting quick enough. Um, I think Institutions like Heronia are a perfect example because it was really in the 50s that these places were saying they got to close. Still in the 70s, they were saying they got to close, but they didn't close till 2009. Um, and so they were definitely outside of the standard of care, in, in my opinion, at least. Back to you, Bruce, on this. Okay, uh, it's uncertain what's meant about the standard of care. Speaking from your experience personally, you know, in your, fa your own family and also what you hear from the people you work with, how would you want to see the standards of care in, in relation to the kind of circumstances we're talking about? Well, I guess to me when I, I, I look at standard of care in a profession as the prof to, and I look to the professionals as being up to date in their particular field. If you hold yourself out to be a professional, then, and you're selling your services as a professional, then the client has the right to expect that you have the latest knowledge, you have the latest information, that your, your education didn't stop when you graduated 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and in some cases, uh, with a lot of professionals, it does stop when they graduate. And, and that can be terribly frustrating. So when I look at uh, standard of care in the professions, I hold the professions to the standard as to what is the latest research. If I am diagnosed with cancer, I don't want treatments that were developed 15 or 20 years ago. I want to know what's the bleeding edge because I want to live. I don't want to go with all the other people who didn't survive from the earlier treatments. So... I place a high, very high standard of care uh, on the professionals. Jody, this is a 20-second question answer. Um, keeping abreast of developing knowledge is a term that I learned in my medical research. Does that apply here? Definitely. <laughs> um, if, uh, if, it, if you don't keep abreast, you're negligent and uh, you're likely liable for the consequences of your negligent actions. Right. 
so what we're really now talking about is the way in which knowledge is taken up, acted upon, and understood by the people who have the responsibilities that are associated with standards of care, and there are a whole bunch of them. So um, at that particular point, because I think it's a very, very key point, I'm going to take the break um, because we need to um, pay, as I'm always saying, the rent and keep a watch on things generally. And then we'll come back and we'll continue with this sort of discussion that we've been having because it's profoundly important and I think it's, it's creating, uh, I think, some, some material that can be used at another time. So... We'll take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guests are Jody Brown and Bruce Ritchie. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. How has your belief system been formed? Has it been based on others telling you what to believe? Do you desire to make changes in your life that you know will bring you deeper fulfillment? Tune in to The Ripple Effect with Katherine Cloward for your weekly dose of inspiration and encouragement. Whether it be in your business, personal relationships, or family life, this show will help you recognize and trust your intuitive knowing. Catherine and her guests will help inspire you to make fulfilling choices for your life. The Ripple Effect is heard live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pestor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You may know what a prostate is, but do you really know its function and how it can truly affect your health and your life? Listen for The Power of the Prostate, Healthy Men, Vital Lives with host Adriana Stilwell. We'll connect you with complimentary health care modalities that can promote prostate health and possibly change your life. The Power of the Prostate is broadcast live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jody Brown and Bruce Ritchie. Our topic is Ontario's developmentally challenged go to court. Who's challenged now? Now, I want to talk more about responsibilities in relation to uh, standards of care and things like that. Now, I want to ask you, Jody, in, in this 
discussion we've just had about standard of care, what role does the medical profession have from a legal perspective? Because you'd mentioned that there were doctors involved in Huronia, although you're not pursuing them individually. So what role does the medical profession as a whole have? And what about the physician's responsibility to keep abreast of developing knowledge in areas of practice such as mental illness, developmental disabilities, and things of that nature. Jody? Well, I think the medical profession has uh, the central and almost only role in defining what the standard of care is, Um, and that's from a legal legal perspective, uh, because in a case, a lawyer is going to look to a doctor to inform both the lawyer but also both the court as to um, what the medical profession does as a whole body. Um, And so the... The doctor's responsibility, I think, is that uh, they have to keep up to breast with uh, evolving knowledge in areas of practice, um, one uh, for their own professional obligations, but particularly if we're going to be tendering them to a court, um, they need to be an expert in the area to inform the court who otherwise uh, doesn't know really what's going on and what the standard of care might be. And so we always ask very candidly of doctors, um, essentially, you know, was this negligent? Was this in accordance with what uh, you see as the current standard in uh, care? Right. Rose, again, on standard of care, in relation to what uh, Jody's just been saying, I want to ask you from the perspective of a family caregiver caring for a family member with an illness, like you were and still are, what role and responsibility do you see for the medical profession uh, in relation to things like standards of care? Well, the medical profession, and, you know, actually, as, as you're aware, Gordon, uh, my, my son's birth mother was a family physician, and uh, she did pass away from uh, advanced uh, alcoholism, long-term abuse. Um, the standards of care are very, very critical that the physicians and the other professions stay up to date. The information has been around for a very long time on fetal alcohol disorders, even though the, the name wasn't actually coined until the 1970s. But the issues have been known for, for centuries. Um, <laughs> the, the standard of care when we had David diagnosed, my son diagnosed, uh, unfortunately the professionals weren't able to give us the information that we needed to be able to raise him. And we ended up forming FastLink fetal alcohol—not FastLink, the fetal alcohol support network—with other parents who were raising kids with FASTI to actually get ideas from each other and do the research, uh, dig out every source that we could find all over the world on fetal alcohol disorders, because the professionals simply didn't have that information. That led to the development of FastLink Online, and we now have over 130,000 documents online related to fetal alcohol disorders. And yet the majority of doctors in this country don't diagnose or can't diagnose fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And the majority of them have not kept up to date in their profession. Right. So standard of care has been (laughs) still terribly neglected among the the medical profession. Right. Jody, I'm going to ask you basically the same question, but in relation to the legal profession. What role and responsibility, if any, does the legal profession have? And do lawyers, who obviously lawyers who are involved in the court actions or the... um, decisions to send somebody away to one of these facilities. 
do they have any responsibility to keep up with developing knowledge in those areas of their practice? I think definitely. Um, lawyers interact with uh, just generally people on every day, and so it's important to understand, you know, maybe there's some sort of a, a medical problem that's limiting that individual's capability to instruct you as a lawyer or seek access to justice. Um, and one of my key professional responsibilities is to increase access to justice. Um, and I think two examples help to highlight it, just quick ones, is that uh, the two plaintiffs in the Heronia case, um, they're both supported by what's called a litigation guardian. And that's someone who's supposed to just help out someone else who maybe can't understand the legal process. Um, but our justice system historically uh, didn't treat people like the plaintiffs in our case as being essentially able to access justice at all, that they'd just have to be passive and sit by. Um, but as we've come to understand what uh, developmental delays are more and what people are capable of, um, we can support these people to essentially bring this lawsuit in their own name. Um, and the other key point is, uh, Gordon, you did mention this, is the Canadian Bar Association's statement on fetal alcohol syndrome. And essentially it relates to criminal prosecutions of um, people who have uh, fetal alcohol syndrome um, and that the justice system needs to be understanding and accommodating of that. And if we don't understand and accommodate it as lawyers, we're bound to uh, either not increase access for justice for people who should have it or uh, in the criminal system prosecute people who otherwise could use different supports. We'll come back if we have a moment later on to the uh, Canadian Bar Association because that raises a very interesting issue. But just let me come back to Bruce. And I'm still on this standard of care. I can't get away from it. What role and responsibility do you see the legal profession having from the perspective of a family caregiver caring for a family member with a mental illness? And I'm wanting to refer you back to the kind of comments that Jody made, you know, where lawyers have to interact with people from the perspective of a family caregiver. What, are the, what roles and responsibilities do you see for lawyers? Uh, I think the, their role is absolutely critical. Uh, one of the issues that we have with fetal alcohol disorders is that our kids are, and adults uh, are, are very concrete in the way they think. They don't do abstract. And unfortunately, all of our litigation, all of our societal rules, all our cues, everything is abstract. And so almost invariably, they're going to come in conflict with the law at some point or another. Uh, they're not going to be able to defend themselves. They, they may well be guilty of actually uh, committing an act, uh, but without any intent to have done so and without any understanding. They can also be easily persuaded to confess to things that they did not do because they can be very accommodating and want people to like them. And so they can end up uh, doing a lot of time. I, I guess one of the things that really concerns me is that when you look back on the history of all of this, you've got uh, uh, nothing was available before 1791 in Ontario other than incarceration. And then in 1841, we got the first asylum. And so they uh, got people who started to bring them out of the, the jail system. And now we've closed the institutions, and we are putting them right back into the jail system. We're, we're 200 years behind. So something really needs to happen in the legal profession to keep this from happening. Or the ne I can see the next major class action lawsuit was uh, you know, unreasonable incarceration because an individual has a mental illness, not because they committed a crime. 
I'm going to just go back to the Canadian Bar Association with Jody. Um, just, just a sort of quick comment to see how, how Jody and then you, Bruce, respond to it. I've read this uh, resolution, and what it says is um, that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder gets people into trouble with the law to the point where they may go to jail. I know that's not a legal type of interpretation, but that's how I read it. Problem I saw with that, Jody, is that FASD is certainly capable of doing that, but so are other mental illnesses like schizophrenia, uh, um, you know, autism, those kinds of conditions can also get people into serious problems. And I wondered, therefore, if the Canadian Bar Association was being a bit too narrow and therefore not really presenting a fair picture of just what mental illness might do in the kind of situations where people are getting into conflict with the law. Jody, what do you think? Uh, unfortunately, I'm not entirely aware of what else the Canadian Bar Association has published. Um, I would like to think hopefully they would have something broader than uh, the resolution that they passed on uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, if there isn't, I would definitely agree that I, I think it is too narrow because other mental illnesses no doubt play a role in uh, many types of interactions with the criminal justice system and uh, would need the same type of consideration as the resolution on FASD uh, gives it. Right. Got it. Now, the same question back to you. Bruce, what do you think about this question of the narrowness to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Well, actually, unfortunately, I guess the terminology sounds as if it's narrow, but remember, it does cover more than 60 different medical conditions and, and a whole host of mental health conditions that come under. It's, it's a spectrum of disorders, which can include schizophrenia and autism, Asperger's, ADHD, ADD, oppositional defiant disorders, you name it, the, just an absolutely huge menu. Uh, it would be nice if the larger, uh, maybe a, a larger sense of being able to identify the the culpability of the individual, the intent and their ability to form intent. Uh, Essentially, it is fundamentally unjust to jail someone for having a disability, for being born with a disability. If that's the reason they're being sent to jail, then that is fundamentally wrong. Right. We're going to we're running, we're in, going into the break in a second. I just want to say back to you. It sounds as though terminology gets in the way. What we call these things, um, how we understand the terminology we use, that seems to be. And I'm speaking as an ex-academic now. That seems to be an area which needs more attention, um, so that uh, we don't shelter behind terms or uh, look as though we're being narrow when we should be broad. Now, as I say, it is time to take the break, so let's go and do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Jody Brown and Bruce Ritchie. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's Doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jody Brown and Bruce Ritchie. Our topic is Ontario's developmentally challenged go to court. Who's challenged now? Now, let's talk about, both of you please, attitudes to mental illnesses and whether we're likely to see to see changes as a result of the class action. Now, Jody, Jody, please could you tell us what would you expect to be the impact of the erroneous suit on government policy regarding mental illness? Well, I think the lawsuit, um, if you know, if you just consider a lawsuit in narrow terms, and unfortunately, it really just looks backwards and tries to compensate for past wrongs. But when you have a lawsuit like this class action that's larger, involves thousands of people. Um, I began to see that it does have an impact on government policy. Um, I mean, it empowers organizations like uh, specifically one in Ontario, People First Ontario, that speaks out for people with developmental delays, and so it empowers them to speak out. It empowers kind of brings previous issues to light that never had been. Um, so I would hope it would change policies regarding mental illness, recognizing that, um, you know, you just because people might be um, difficult to care for, you can't just kind of, uh, ignore them or uh, push them under the rug into institutions. Bruce, it's the same question, but it's in relation to the healthcare system. What could be the impact of the class action suit on the healthcare system? Well, one of the one of the problems. Let me put it this way: one of the problems that we've had when we close the major institutions that we put people on the street. Some of them uh, can survive into group home environments, uh, but often if they step out of line, they get turfed out, and they're sleeping on heating grates on on the streets, or they break the law and they're thrown into jail. One of the things that needs to happen in the class action lawsuit may help happen is that sufficient funding will be put into providing alternate facilities and supports for the people who are now being transferred, uh, who have been transferred out of the institutions and now living in the prison system. And so that, that I'm looking forward to the class action lawsuit. Uh, it may also clean up the way they're dealt with uh, within the prison system before they're even uh, released 
and hopefully it will help put uh, support services out there so they don't end up going through the justice system. So let's treat this as a health care issue, not as a corrections issue. And I think that's one huge thing that uh, this class action lawsuit can help. Right. Jody, this is a question. It's back to the terminological issue, um, and it's this, that what brought the children and the adults to Huronia could have been acknowledged as illnesses, just as breast cancer, prostate cancer, and lung cancer are acknowledged as illnesses. Um, that might have been the alternative to relying on these vaguer labels like developmental challenges. Would you go so far as to say that had we spoken of mental illnesses instead of developmental challenges, the Huronia and similar histories might have turned out differently? Um, it's a hard question. Um, I think in one sense I would uh, say that I think the labeling is actually one of the key problems that did create people going to Aronia because it was able to sort of very easily to segment people off who just seemed different at the time. Um, that said, though, even when I'm using the, the vague label that's developmentally challenged, I recognize that it, it creates a sort of homogenous label that doesn't necessarily it can't encapsulate everyone's individual challenges. And many of those individual challenges would be mental illnesses that would need to be recognized and treated um, as opposed to just saying it's a developmental delay and uh, off to the institution you go. Um, but that said also is that uh, one of the key parts of this lawsuit and many of the plaintiffs is that um, they want to move away from labels in that they want to be seen as uh, everyday average people who uh, can interact um, with anyone, hold a job, uh, and enjoy all the freedoms that uh, we all enjoy. Fair enough. Same question to you, Bruce. I'm not going to uh, repeat it just to say, what about uh, developmental challenges versus illnesses as terminology? Uh, well, the, again, it comes into the terminology problem, but there's, it's just a wide spectrum of issues that needed to be dealt with and still need to be dealt with. Uh, it, it's just... Uh, there were people who were put into those institutions who were not well served, and one of the big problems that I see with it is that in any situation where you have one human being with absolute power over another human being, you invite an abuse situation. We saw it in the residential schools. We've seen it in the mental health institutions. We see it in the prison systems. Uh, you know, basically one of the things that, uh, you know, I mean, that these people have been abused by individuals. And how do you prevent individuals in power from abusing those without power? What kind of checks and balances can we put into our systems to make sure that doesn't happen? Right. Now, I've got um, a question. This relates to the theme of this show and what, what I'm working for, and that is, recognition of the role of family caregivers in the future, not the past. And I wonder if there's any recognition going to come from all of this that there's a limit to what people like I used to be, a physician, can do with medication. And that dealing with some of the issues that you've both raised, particularly the last one where Bruce is saying, you know, people should be dealt with on the basis of what they can do, can't do, understand, and of those kinds of things. Um, I'm wondering whether you would both hope or want to see 
some better recognition flow from all of this that where there is a family caregiver, a mom or pop like, um, like Bruce, more support would be useful in keeping the people, the young people, out of the justice system, given that the healthcare system will never really be able to cure these conditions. Jody, first of all, what do you think of them, Bruce? Um, I couldn't agree more with the statement that I think uh, more recognition and value needs to be put on family caregivers. Uh, with this lawsuit, I think it, it's all about the idea that um, the large-scale institutions failed and that um, the solution to that is small-scale small scale, uh, community supports, and that includes close connections to family, and it's because... Uh, and you need supports for those families, so that's one of the key things. You can't just give someone a, a child who has high needs and expect them to, to cope without any form of support. Um, and so I think what this lawsuit is really about was the idea that the government should have shifted its support from these large-scale institutions to kind of smaller modeled caregiving, such as family units or uh, other forms of community support. Bruce, what do you think? <clears throat> it would be a heck of a lot cheaper to support these individuals in the home financially than in a large institution. Uh, but often what will happen in the home with a family caregiver where you have a very high-needs child, you have about 85% uh, breakdown rate in the family unit itself. And so you end up with a single parent raising uh, a child with very high needs and perhaps some other siblings. Uh, being forced to drop out of the working uh, environment to provide those care and end up on social assistance. So you can end up in a, in a situation where you know, everybody basically is starving to death and the supports aren't there. Right. I'm going if to have provide to... the supports, the kids won't end up in the institutions. Right. Family caregiving is one answer. Um, unfortunately, we have to stop there, although I'd love to go on talking about all of these issues. So first of all, I want to say thank you to our listeners, and a thank you to Jody and to Bruce for sharing with us all your insights and your experience and your advice. And in every possible way, I wish you both success. I don't know whether it's, I'm allowed to wish a lawsuit success. <laughs> I, I go for it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take any wish you can give. <laughs> there you go. Now, now in our next episode, we're going to be talking about viewing the home with information technology. So to our listeners, please join us for that one. Also equally charged with difficult questions. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 